Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to this Mumbrella Cast special. I'm Tim Burrows. Ahead of his appearance at next month's Mumbrella 360 Reconnected, I'm talking to Sir Martin Sorrell. Sir Martin is possibly the world's best-known adman. During his 33 years at the helm of WPP, it became the world's biggest advertising group, overtaking Omnicom in 2011. He left WPP in acrimonious circumstances in 2018 and started S4 Capital almost immediately. He quickly began the sort of deal-making that's also characterised his time at WPP, purchasing Media Monks, Mighty Hive and Melbourne company BizTech. Since then, S4 also brought on board Australian strategy consultancy Lens10. Sir Martin is executive chairman. A few days ago, S4's market capitalisation rose above £2 billion for the first time after being the only global holding group to be able to present half-year results to the market that contained good news despite COVID. He joins me now. So Martin, welcome. Before we talk in detail about S4 Capital, I'm keen to get your thoughts on the economic outlook. Now, something that characterised your time at WPP was that your market updates were always a fascinating read for those who wanted to understand what the global economy was doing. Now, you kept that up with S4. Last month, you suggested that the Nike swoosh-shaped recovery being predicted by many isn't the correct shape. It's actually a reverse square root, a sharp fall, followed by a sharp recovery, but to a lower level, and then a plateau. How do you see that unfolding? Pretty much like that. I think I like the reverse square root in the sense that it it is a sharp fall and a sharp recovery, uh, which I think we'll see next year in terms of GDP. Because GDP this year, you look at most of the estimates for this year, be down five, six, seven percent, eight percent worldwide. China being the only country, according to the official statistics, that will the only major economy that will grow by about one point one percent. The last time I, I I looked at it, but next year the forecast. I mean, I look at Goldman quite on a regular basis. Every Sunday evening, I listen to their market reports and I uh, or their predictions of what will happen in the following week and they are, have been on the, the more optimistic end for next year on the basis that we'll get a vaccine midway through the year so that's a critical by the middle of the year so that's a critical assumption that means a vaccine that is approved produced distributed and we are vaccinated so we'll, we'll see what happens but I think I like the square the reverse square root because it the trouble with the swoosh is it it sort of implies that we're going to go to a higher level pretty quickly. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Now, within the reverse square root, there are V-shaped sectors, verticals. There are U-shaped and there are L-shaped. I haven't come across any chairs yet. That's ones that, that sort of flat out and fall off the, the chart. But the Vs are around tech and healthcare and in-home game and entertainment and online shopping and online education and online financial services, that sort of area. The U's are, are more the package goods and the autos. The, the, the focus package goods companies like a L'Oreal uh, or a, a, a Kellogg's or a General Mills, you know, with, with product portfolios that perhaps pre-COVID 
weren't as attractive, but as a result of COVID and, and, and in-home eating and being restricted and lockdowns, as you'll know from Melbourne uh, in particular at the moment, you know, that, that becomes more and more popular. So there are some sort of narrow U's uh, like those. And then there are some broader use. Uh, a Proctor has done very well because it's out of its food business. Unilever does done well relatively, but probably the food business has held it back because food service and ice cream is affected by lack of distribution. But, you know, the concentrated, the concentrated package, L'Oreal is another very good example. Concentrated. Nestle has done well, probably despite product portfolio issues, maybe in the longer ter term, in, in, but you know, Mark Schneider is altering the portfolio there. So, and then the autos, I think, a more flat-bottomed view. It's going to take longer for them to recover. And then the L's are clearly travel and hospitality. Um, the chairs, I haven't come across any chairs yet, but you know, they're clearly, clearly there, there are long-term implications from the pandemic. I, I think it's as accelerated trends that were there before. I mean, working from home, uh, dispersed living, moving out of city centers, the transportation congestion issues, all those issues were there before. They've just been accelerated by COVID and COVID basically has accelerated digital transformation at the consumer level, at the media level, as you know, Tim, from your own uh, experiences with Umbrella and live events converting to virtual events like we're doing here. And then last but not, not least, and most importantly, at the enterprise level. So companies that were, were frightened or hesitant to transform digitally because of the cost or the disruption. Q2 was so, so bad, you know, the holding companies being a good example of it, the banks being another good example of it. It was so bad, you might as well just get on with it. Uh, you know, the, the whole, you know, you took, you, you took a torpedo in the, in the, the above the waterline <laughs> and you might as well get on with patching it up and getting on with uh, with sailing as quickly as you possibly can, if that's the right analogy. Now, you've previously often talked about the quadrennially effect, the Olympics, the US yes. election on marketing yeah. spend. Now, do, yeah. do you think that pattern will reassert itself by 2024? Well, next year, next year it will. I'm, I'm very bullish on next year. I mean, we've seen sequential growth, as you know, from our numbers in Q3 over Q2, April for us was the nadir, if that's the right way of putting it, with a plus 3% growth. And we're now back uh, as of August to, to where, and July and August, to where we were in January and February. So, you know, we've come out of it. And in fact, we've got an important decision to make. We cut our compensation at the, the board level by 50% uh, effective April the 1st. And we said we would do it to the end of September. And we have to decide whether uh, we're, we're going to go back to where we were. I mean, we've actually taken the lid off uh, promotions and raises in certainly. I mean, obviously, when we went through COVID, you know, we put, we, we put a, a clamp down and uh, now we've taken that off. So, you know, we've really come through COVID, the famous last words, but we're, we're through it and we're back to where we were on a, a very good platform. Now, as far as 2021 is concerned, I think that's uh, sort of similar to what we saw in 2010. Obviously, the recession is very different. COVID affected everybody. It affected everybody, but differently. Those with more resources and wealthier were less effective within nations and between nations. So in India and Brazil, for example, between nations was more bad, badly affected and probably long-term will be more badly affected. But, but essentially, you know, we're, we're, I think 2021 mirrors 2020, 2010. You remember the, 
the great financial crisis, Congress took a long time to pass the TARPs, as they were called. It didn't go through to March of 2009. But then we saw a very significant impact in 2010. And 2010 is surprised on the upside. So I think that's what's going to happen with 2021 on the assumption that the vaccine comes in, you know, whether it's AstraZeneca, whether it's uh, GSK, whether it's Moderna, whether it's Pfizer, it looks like Pfizer is the front runner at the moment. But when that comes in, the Chinese already have a vaccine, which they've tested, I understand, on the army and, and elsewhere. And I hear that some Middle Eastern countries may have sort of access to it uh, fairly quickly. So the Russians have a vaccine, supposedly. So we, we'll, see, we'll see what happens on that front. But 2021, snapback. And to your point about the quadrennial, you know, we've got a funny quadrennial in 2021. We've got the postponed Tokyo Olympics. We've got the European Cup. So we have two events. We don't have congressional midterms. We don't have a presidential election. We have congressional midterms, would you believe, in 2022. And there might be some spending in advance of that. We'll have to see what happens in the US presidential election. But essentially, I think there will be a bit of a boost. And I think the question that you asked is a really interesting one, because, um, you know, I was thinking back to my day, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of Sarches, the founding of the original Sarches, where, you know, I was from 77 to 85. And, you know, I was thinking back to those days. And in those days, <laughs> Morris, Morris, Ivan Fallon's book, yes, uh, Morris and Charles and, and uh, Tim Bell and Jeremy Sinclair and Bill Muirhead, we, you know, we used to watch um, advertising spend used to be correlated to GDP growth. Now that, that correlation is broken. And in the quadrennial years, the maxi quadrennials, which were my summer Olympics years, and the mini quadrennials, which were the winter Olympics years, basically, the four year cycle, we said that ad spend was, was accelerated by about 1%, by about 100 basis points uh, by those events. But advertising rose with GDP growth. So if GDP went up by 5%, in those days we had inflation, Ad spend went up by 5% and more. It was about 1.5%. So it would go up by about 7.5% in the days when ad spending was developing. You see a similar correlation, I think now, between digital ad spend and GDP growth. It's not with traditional. And traditional, you know, it's, it's tough. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's really very difficult. Ad spend, you know, every media owner that I've spoken to in the last six to seven months traditional media owner has really got trouble. You talk to newspaper and magazine owners, I mean, it, it is really dreadful. And this follows a couple of years in the UK, for example, when I was at WPP, when newspaper and magazine advertising spend in the old sense, you know, felling trees, distributing news spread was down by 25% in each of two years. So it fell by about 50% in two years. We've now got a further leg down. You know, this is probably the area where we've seen the closest to a chair shape in terms of in terms of what's happening in terms of traditional me media spend. But on digital, that is growing at GDP rates or more. So if GDP next year is going to be up by five or six or seven percent and in the US around that level, too, because of the sequential drop that we saw in Q2 of this year and the impact on the annual rate to this year, that is huge. So I think next year, so the macro trends for S4 in the digital suite put spot by luck or judgment are great. And the micro on the back of BMW, on the back of growth that looks like 
Our top line growth, according to analysts this year, will be somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. So in a, in a COVID year, that's very strong. Let's like for like. Reported will be obviously much higher. So net-net, long, long explanation, but net-net, I feel quite bullish about next year. And, um, I, 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 I totally accept your point about the, the, the strength of being digitally focused rather than traditional media focused. Clearly, that's a really good part of the, the, the explanation for, for why S4 Capital has done so much better over the last few months than the traditional holding companies. I suppose if I have one reservation is too strong a word, but question, when I look through S4 through the lens of you know, a marketer, potential clients, um, I, I wonder, are you in the position to help solve all of their problems or have they also got to talk to people outside of your world? Because, of course, they exist in a traditional media world as well. Well, we, we've chosen to focus on growth. I mean, I think the, 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 the traditional holding company model is a busted model. And it's past its sell-by date. You know, McKinsey says the average company lasts for about 17 years in the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500. And WPP has been there for 35 years or so. So it's probably had two lives in that, in that sense. But you know, the, it, 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 it needs to, it, that model needs to be broken up. It, it, it's, it's not going to survive. It, it is just not going to survive. It's not right. And we've chose the model that S4 has built around is around growth. It's not that margin is unimportant. It means it is that in these growth models, top line growth, what retailers call same store growth, not adding new stores, but you know, the existing store base, that grows. And that's the growth rate that drives total shareholder return, particularly in a tech world. And 54% of our revenues, which are around $400 million, come from tech companies. And there's, a, there's a, another 6% that comes from healthcare companies, basically, and a bit from telcos. So almost two-thirds of our business comes from the more V-shaped sectors, go back to the square root, uh, reverse square root analysis. So, you know, in a way, you're right what you say, and it, either criticism or whatever, but we've chosen the growth model. WPP model and Saatchi's model is a backward looking model because what it is is a market share model. In other words, you, you, you have different brands, you know they cannibalize one another, but you accept that because you build market share. So it's a bit like, I liken it to P&G or Unilever detergents. You know, you, you launch another detergent, you know there's cannibalization at the edges, but you accept that because at the end of the day, you build, you build market share. So the logic of this model is very different. The other point is marketeers want to take back control. What happened after 2008, you know, particularly in the teeth of the zero-based budgeting fad, uh, which wasn't a, a new fad. I mean, when I was at business school in the late 60s, 1960s, there were zero-based budgeting models. Hal Janine ran IT&T, one of the big conglomerates. Jimmy Ling ran Tempico Vought in the same way with a, with a, a laser-like focus on costs. You know, Janine used to sit in a bunker uh, underground 24 hours a day. You didn't know, nobody knew whether it was day or night, literally, just going through the numbers. And um, that's the way he ran the, ran the business. And, and it, it worked for a bit, but then it, 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 they, and they deconsolidated the conglomerates. That's what I think is gonna happen to the holding companies. 
they will be deconsolidated. I mean, they've already started to deconsolidate and slim down for whatever reason. Our model is growth-based, but after 2008, with that focus on costs, marketeers outsourced far too much of their capabilities and control. And marketeers now are taking back control. So this is sort of like Brexit. This is like the, the voter trying to take back control from the EU, from Brussels. Marketeers surrender too much control. And in addition, in a digital world, which is 24 seven, always on when, as you know, competitor consumers are changing all the time, COVID driven, whatever, however they're driven, their tastes and their preferences are shifting in terms of purchasing habits, media, etc. the way they conduct their lives, they buy stuff online, they, you know, they buy it, you know, from, go from bricks to clicks and everything like that. So the change demands more control because things are shifting all the time. So creating a 30 second or 60 second TV commercial over a period of three months doesn't work anymore. It doesn't mean that big ideas are not important. It means the way they're developed and distributed and applied is totally different. And that's what the holding companies, they've got a sort of an albatross around their neck, which is the, you know, the old stuff, you know, and by the way, you know, injecting VML into YNR or Wonderman into JWT doesn't work. Particularly if you humiliate the people in JWT and YNR. Well, look, I was, I, was, I was actually going to, to raise that as a question because JWT yeah. was one of the first acquisitions you made at WPP and seeing yeah. that iconic name disappear from the market. Um, I'm not sure if you're a sentimental person, but how did you feel about that news? Well, you've got to remember that, you know, they haven't disappeared in that sense. You, know, you remember JWT, it had Hill and Knowlton in, it had a research company, BMRB, MRB it was called. You've got to remember that what effectively happened, and this happened with Omnicom and IPG and others, the, 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 those groups, you know, JWT, Ogilvy, YNR Grey, were mini WPPs. And what we did was we broke those companies apart. Group M, Mindshare, was the media departments of JWT and Ogilvy. And, you know, Wonderman was part of YNR. Uh, all these parts, you know, they, these were parts of what we did was disassemble. So when you say JWT disappears, or when we, we it didn't really disappear because the research business went into Cantor, and that's now a part of Bain Capital. As I said, you know, it had direct, Hill and Knowlton became part of the public relations and public affairs businesses. So they were disassembled. The media business, the media departments, you know, Shelley Lazarus, and Chris Jones was running JWT at the time, realized finally that if they didn't have a specialized media department, which ultimately ended up being run by Owen Gottlieb, they would lose all their media business. I remember we sat in the UK and we, we were horrified as JWT in the UK was losing media business hand over fist to the independent, you know, the Grow Brothers in France with Aegis. Chris Ingram at CIA, Western International, Dennis Holt, Michael Casson, would you believe, right? They were creating these media independence, so we disassembled it. So it's wrong to think about JWT disappearing. I'm referring to the traditional agency inside JWT. And, you know, sticking one, 
you know, you can make VML look better and why not? I mean, what happened at WPP, which nobody has commented on, is that a significant amount of the Ford account was shifted out of GTB into VML. It was something like, I think in 2018, something like 30 or $45 million. No analyst has ever raised this. But it was shifted. And then GTV, which was the Ford agency, which was the biggest account, probably still is, inside WP, was shuffled into this sort of, sort of anonymous group, which is called specialist agencies inside it. I mean, the whole thing has been, there's no, there's no definition. You have this 75% of WPP, which is in the agencies, which is the advertising agencies, VML now, and Wonderman and the media agencies, there's no definition to it. It's almost become a black box like Omnicom in terms you can't figure out what the hell is going on between the advertising agencies, the digital agencies, and the media agencies. But no analyst as yet has raised that, that point. I mean, they, they ponder it, but they haven't raised it. And a question I find myself asking, and I, you know, I know you, you, you make the case that perhaps it's time for WPP to be broken up, I find myself thinking there's a sort of alternative timeline where you're still the boss of WPP. And in that timeline, I'm sure you wouldn't be arguing to break it up. So what moves would you have made over the last couple of years to keep it relevant? Well, I think it's, it's, to be fair, it's extremely difficult. I mean, we wrestled with it. Uh, we wrestled with, you know, the concept of horizontality, which was an ugly word maybe for an ugly concept, but I think it's the right concept. I think WPP has become more vertical. Two things that happened at WPP, you've got more chief breakfast officers, CBOs. You know, I, I see now we have a, a function you know, around public affairs at the center. I mean, the weight of people sitting at the center in sea container house, you know, the, the ship is sort of becoming extremely top heavy and it's becoming more vertical. It's going to be, I think, more difficult for people to talk to one another ever than they did before. No, look, I, I think probably, Tim, the pressure, the, the, you know, the, the, the vice was tightening, the, the screws were tightening. And I think maybe, you know, if, if I'd not gone from there, um, in the teeth of COVID, it would have forced a different response. I mean, you have to remember that if I think about my personal wealth, um, I still, a significant amount of my personal wealth is, is invested still in WPP. I still own in one way or another. Why? Why haven't you sold? Well, because uh, it goes back to, if you really want you know, the history of this, I always remember seeing a tape. There was a guy called Norton Simon who ran a... Um, wonderful food business. My first boss, Gerald Smiler, worked for Norton Simon. And he was a very rich guy. And uh, like Charlie Saatchi, like Charles Saatchi, he built an art collection. And a modern art, actually. And he was interviewed about the art collection. And he said, collecting is a sickness. And he said, the trouble with collectors, and Charles was like this too, is they never sell anything. They always just collect, right? And, and Philosophically, that's, I mean, you know, I've likened starting a business, the closest a man can come to having a baby without, you know, not physically, but mentally. Um, and that's why I feel about it. So WPP will always be my baby, whatever, however people try to rewrite history or whatever. 
uh, it will always be the case. And so I have a, a, a sentimental affection for it, and I'd like to see it succeed. And, and to your point, I think probably the pressure would have been so great that you would have radically changed. I mean, for example, we looked at Kantar, uh, we, we had talked to private equity about this disgorging Kantar. Uh, uh, we talked to Nielsen. We had two structures worked out with the previous CEO of Nielsen, where we merged Kantar with Nielsen. That was my preferred route, actually, when I was there. But I think the answer to your question is the pressure. You know, the trouble, WPP has a good bank let's say VML, AKQA, parts of Ogilvy, not all of Ogilvy 1, or what was Ogilvy 1, parts of one, not all of one. And a lot of, you know, there's a significant part of one which is old, old direct still, and old fashioned. But you take those parts, those are the good parts. Essence, Zaxis maybe, Group M, some of the PR units, you know, Donna Imperato is a sort of very sparky, you know, runs, uh, it, it's a, a mixture of Burson and Conan Wolf, but you, you know, you've got some very good parts to it. Uh, in Kantar, you had Kantar World Panel. There, there are, there's a good bank and there's a bad bank and, and really splitting the, the bad bank off. And, I, and coming back to your point about JWT and YNR, and indeed Ogilvy, you know, Ogilvy was a $2 billion business, I'm told it's much smaller now, I'm told it's about $1.4 billion. Um, so it shrunk significantly. But that's a very good brand, means not just traditional, but modern. And I think separately, you know, if John Seifert, who is the displaced head of Ogilvy, was running Ogilvy separately, it would be far better. Uh, I think... Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm not joking about the CBOs, the chief breakfast officers, right? The weight, the crushing weight of these people shuffling email. They don't shuffle paper anymore. They shuffle emails to one another. It's horrendous. Talk to the people inside the company and ask them what they think. It's really negative. And, you know, having all these people rushing around doing staff jobs when the job coming back to your question is about you know how do you work with clients in an effective way in a covid world you know you have to focus on the clients and what they're thinking about now and the focus obviously on the consumer and what they're thinking about and this this you know this is like you know, this is management management building you know building empires at the center it doesn't work well I'm glad you mentioned Ogilvy. Um, if there's one thing above everything else that I'm jealous of you for, it's that you knew David Ogilvy. Now, I'd argue that Ogilvy on advertising is still the best book ever written about advertising. Right. So I, I wonder how you'd sum up his legacy. Well, you know, David, David was very far-sighted. And people forget, you know, apart from being an Ar Argo cooker salesman, he was, you know, he, he was trained at Gallup. And in fact, when I, when I, I did a podcast with Bob Pittman at iHeart Radio, and you know, he asked me about, because Bob was an underbidder for JWT, it's very funny, in 1987. And we went through the, the Ogilvy story, you know, the odious little jerk, odious little shit um, story, and his first public apology. And you know, when I met David, I'd read not just Ogilvy on advertising, I'd read all of his books. 
and you know I could recite chunks of it. I think that's what won him over. I mean, vanity and like everybody, vain. Um, but you know, he was. I, I read, but you know, when you read his book, it's really interesting. Ogilvy Direct or Ogilvy One as a it was called Ogilvy Direct originally, and then became Ogilvy One, now Ogilvy. Um, the direct part of the business, you know, what David saw was the growth of one-to-one communication. And, you know, it was in a different form. It wasn't you know, the web, but, you know, he, he looked at it and, and he understood the importance of it. So David really understood what was happening. And, and in, a way, in a way, nothing is new in our business. Um, you know, if the holding companies were to be broken up, which I think you and I agree that they should be, we'd be back to the future. We will be back to where we were in the 70s and the 80s, you know, when I was at Sarge's, you know, it was Compton Advertising Incorporation, which incorporated, which, which was a company that serviced mainly Procter and & Gamble and J&J and other clients, but it was broken back. So in a way, we've gone back to that. And the best, you know, coming back to your question about our positioning, I'm much happier being in the growth market. You know, I think the people at S4 are more than averagely intelligent, but let's assume they're averagely intelligent. We will do far better if we push on an open door. We will do far better if we're operating in a market like this year. Digital is flat, maybe up a bit. We're growing, according to the analysts, 15 to 20% this year. So we're 1,500 to 2,000 basis points stronger than the market. The ad holding companies probably this year will do minus 10 on average. That's probably where they'll end up. So we'll be plus 50. We're much smaller, but plus 50, so call it 17.5%. They'll be mine. So, you know, that's 27.5% difference. And well, what, you know, so if we're averagely intelligent, we're going to do better. And if we're well, brighter, that, then we'll do even better. So I'd just far rather be where the growth is. And when you know, digital is 50% of the market now, Michael Nathanson, I think is the best, one of the best analysts in America. So now it upped his figure to 70% of the market by 2024 in the US, growing at 17% compound. So the market, according to him, in the US is going to go at 17%. 70% of our business is in the US. A base of 17% top line growth market for 70% of our business currently constituted. So that's a pretty good place to be. Well, look, that I think brings me to my, my and quite neatly to my final question, which is um, you previously said that you might do two five-year cycles at the top of S4. Now yeah. you're, you're halfway through that first one. Um, so I'm wondering, do you, do you think your market capitalization will have overtaken WPP by the time you get to the end of that second cycle? Probably in four. You know, people ask me when, when we started, when I was at Sarge's, you know, I was working for the, for the brothers, uh, which was a super time. Uh, you know, one of the best times I've ever had. Uh, you know, Sarge's is a shadow of itself. I mean, I, I laughed a little bit when I, when I saw that they were cel- the way that they were celebrating. Well, I wasn't, didn't laugh, actually. I, I, it was sad actually, the way that they were trying to celebrate the 50th anniversary. I think it was somewhat demeaning for the, the old Saatchi, Saatchi brand. But, but you know, I, that people ask, 
the brothers what we were going to do, or me as finance director, and always hesitated. WPP the same. You, you, look, we have an ambition, S4, which is to build the new age, new era advertising and marketing services model. We compete more with Accenture, I think, than we do with the holding companies, but we'll see how that develops over time. So that's one. And the subsidiary objective is to knock off the old. You know, there is, a, there is an agenda here. There is a point to prove. It's not just for me. It's for all, all the people within S4, you know, whether it be Victor and Wes at Media Monks or Pete and Chris at Mighty Hive or Scott and Michelle, who came from WPP with me, or Peter Radebeck, who's the ex-CFO of Media Monks, who's now the CFO of, of S4 as a whole. We have a point to prove. And then the other entrepreneurs inside inside the business, you know, whether they come from Firewood, the Zambranos, whether they come from Circus, Bruno, the, all these people really have approached the business in a very different way, Tim. And, and they want to see this way. They believe this way is the way of the future. And they want to see it successful. So the objective is not, you know, our market cap, which is what, roughly a third of WPP's market cap now after a couple of years. It's not, it's not we want, you know, to surpass them. We, I think, about 160 in the FTSE one, one, one uh, 250 or 350 so we're we're making progress but the objective is really to demonstrate you know we have we have brand awareness we have brand trial we're now getting conversion at scale you know we have three whopper clients as we call them we we have a 20 squared objective we want 20 whoppers which are 20 million dollars of revenue each we have three google a well-known tech company which we are nda'd on and then thirdly bmw we think we'll have a fourth by the end of the year and we think we'll have a fifth but through uh, through uh, what we call land and expand that's through growth by winning projects and winning projects so we think we'll go into next year with four or five of whom two to three will be tech so tech is really the heartland of our business and understanding the tech companies hardware companies software companies the platforms that's the critical we're not we're not a technology company. We understand the implications of the shifts in technology. That's what we're about. So that's what we're trying to do. It's not a question. I'm not going to set. I heard David Jones say, well, we'll go from 1 billion to 5 billion. I, I, don't, I don't think that serves any purpose. If we're successful, it's like Maurice Sarchi always used to say, if you're good, you'll be the biggest. And no. if, if, if you're good, we'll do well. If I said bad, last question, right. but perhaps in, the, uh, perhaps in the two minutes we have remaining. Um, if someone's listening who is an agency founder in Australia and is interested yeah. in doing business with you, how do, they, how do they get to you? How do they reach you? They, 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 write, they email me at martin at s4capital.com. Simple. So, Martin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Good, good luck on your, 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 what does it call it? Long holiday or long, <laughs> long, long service holiday. leave. Well, that's it for this special interview edition of the Mumbrella Cast. You are listening to S4 Capitals, Sir Martin Sorrell. If you'd like to hear more from him, he's one of our keynote speakers for next month's Mumbrella 360 Reconnected. Tickets start at just $69.99.
nice. Find out more at mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360. And Hannah and the team will be back with another Mumbrella cast on Thursday when they'll be dissecting the 10 upfronts. That's it from me for now, though. Toodle pip. Thank you.